Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Michael E. Lee talks to Angel Garcia about his book, The Kingdom Began in Puerto Rico, Neil Connolly's Priesthood in the South Bronx. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Michael Lee. I am professor of theology and director of the Curran Center for American Catholic Studies at Fordham University in the Bronx, New York. And I'm here today with Angel Garcia, a community organizer and former executive director of the South Bronx People for Change. And I'm excited to discuss his excellent new book, The Kingdom Began in Puerto Rico, Neil Connolly's Priesthood in the South Bronx. Angel, bienvenidos. Well, gracias. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And thanks to uh, HTI as well. So let's get into it. Uh, what, mm -hmm. Let's start with a basic question. What inspired you to write the book? Well, um, I looked around at, um, uh, at what people had said about the South Bronx. I'd, I'd already uh, spent my uh, roughly, uh, you know, eight years or so doing church-based organizing. And um, it just as I came, this was after the 80s, and I came up with this uh, sort of constant uh, thing in the back of my head that people are not really going to sort of know the true history of what, um, what various people and communities and organizations did to... Uh, fight for a decent South Bronx mm. um, what, uh, to, and amid the sort of ongoing waves of epidemics of, uh, as, as Father Connolly would call it, of poverty and of um, crime and of drugs um, that hit the South Bronx. And I would add to that the, the pandemic of uh, the epidemic of housing abandonment. Yeah, in fact, you, you um, described- And I thought that story needed to be told. Hmm. You, you describe the book as a, a part of a people's history of the South Bronx, and, and even right. go on to say it's a, a third person biography within a historical context. Uh, right. How does this book contribute to that people's history? Right. So, I mean, it, if we're looking at uh, at at the history um, uh, you know, there is it, it, it's important for people to sort of know oh, it's more than just a bunch of buildings uh, were burned and then they were knocked down mm. and that was it. Um, it, it, it. It was important to take a look at what organizations were created um, to give life in those neighborhoods um, and um, to fight back against some of these, uh, against some of these really sort of um, sometimes uh, uh, demoralizing conditions that people had to live with, with these conditions of suffering. Um, and uh, it was just needed to be made very clear to people that this was not uh, people who stood by and just suffered. And um, Neil Connolly was part of uh, efforts, various efforts throughout the history of the South Bronx, um, which really happened. I mean, the, the, this history really was, coincided with the time that he was in the South Bronx. Um, the history that uh, we understand really began in the late 50s and, and 60s, um, and perhaps even before then, 
but um, that was the time when people were facing pretty fierce conditions. And just as an example, one of the conditions, uh, one of the stories that is discussed in the book is this whole question of uh, struggles for uh, justice. Um, there was a brutal cold that had hit the, uh, really the city of New York, but had hit particularly hard those neighborhoods where there were a lot of low-income families. And certainly the South Bronx, uh, at least that neighborhood called Hunts Point, um, where Neil Connolly was working, that was, that was particularly hit hard. And his response and the response of the priests of that parish uh, Father John Byrne, Father Lou Giganti, and Neil Connolly was in the face of all of it to say, no, we're ja basta. We're not going to accept it anymore. We're not going to make, uh, we're not going to continue to accept calls um, from people uh, who are desperate uh, for heat in their apartments. Um, and uh, we're not going to accept the responses to our calls, uh, sometimes for hours on end on the phone to get the housing agencies to force the landlords to put the heat back on. And so we've had it with all of the the one-on-one the, uh, -on -one advocacy, we're gonna march. And so for the first time in his life ever, uh, after 10 years, 11 years in the South Bronx, Neil Connolly's out on the streets marching and it was during the holiday season. And he and 300 parishioners and neighbors and his fellow priests tied up traffic on Hunts Point. And um, they took four large metal cans, put some pieces of old lumber from their buildings, set them on fire, and were marching, parading around it. This is something he would have never envisioned in the years uh, of seminary, the six years of minor seminary, six years of majors. He would never have imagined that this was what he was going to be do doing to become a true priest. But he decided this is what he had to do. And he joined and formed uh, and grew a group called the Bronx Clergy Coalition, which um, fought for emergency housing repairs um, and for legislation during that, during that period of 1969, 1970, even to the point of going down to City Hall and disturbing a city council meeting and getting arrested for it. Because he and his clergy said, this is not acceptable anymore. And that was just one of the sort of first actions. You know, obviously he did it with a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and a lot of tension, but he realized the status quo, I, I, can't, I can't worry about whether I'm disturbing the status quo or not. The status quo means that my people are suffering. All of these people I've been seeing in my rectory, they're all suffering and I can't accept it. And nobody's responding. This is the next step. So, so that was one example. Yeah. You know, that story reminds me that this book uh, at one moment is part of that history of the South Bronx. It's a history mm -hmm. of this Puerto Rican population in the South Bronx. Right. Uh, but it's also the story of this priest, this one priest mm -hmm. uh, of Irish background <laughs> who right. serves this community. And, and I wonder if you talk for a moment about that choice. I mean, how would you respond to someone who says, hey, I don't want to read a book about a white savior in the Bronx. <laughs> well, well, what does the focus on Father Connolly do for you? Right. Um, I was, uh, I, I saw in this person a real, um, 
uh, his his story uh, as the, the the more I got into it and the more rewrites that I did of it, I realized this is a story about someone searching for what it means to be a true priest, and he was doing it in a significant historical time. And and then I stepped back and as I was uh, I got to read this document uh, from. Uh, Vatican II, the very influential event of uh, the gathering of all the bishops in the world uh, in, the, in the mid-60s. And this one particular document, Gaudium et Spes, said, mm-hmm. we are, we the church, we are marching in history with humankind. And I think, I think this is an example of a a person who came to recognize that and who came to uh, realize that that's what his the church that he belongs to needs to be about. It needs to march in history. And he was responding, he was thrust into, um, uh, you know, historical conditions where 750,000 of, of us came to New York and disturbed essentially the makeup of New York City and the status quo of New York City. And and he had to respond to them. The church had to respond to them. And um, and this was at the same time after the Second World War that all sorts of forces were at play. You know, neighborhoods were being emptied out. Uh, other and and by by um, uh, mostly white households who moved out into the suburbs. Um, laws were being passed. Decisions were being made. And all of a sudden, you've got a place where. The Puerto Ricans come in huge numbers, and uh, they are creating a whole history of themselves. So these, and uh, in, in in the midst of these new laws of slum clearance projects uh, uh, and of uh, abandonment, and it it was essentially to say that he and and by extension myself at least, we were in the middle of significant historical events and and the church gets shaped by and shapes those events and i think that's what i I think that's what uh ministry whether it's social justice ministry or ministry within the church or hopefully a combination of the two that's what it's about you recognize that you are marching in history with humankind and uh presumably with the goal of building the kingdom of God on earth, of, of, of moving humankind towards that point where everyone leave, lives in dignified conditions. And his learning experience was shaped by these historical forces. And I'm, um, I'm looking to see, I saw for myself, oh, I'm a product of all of these historical forces. And I would like uh, any reader or any audience to know that whether they like it or not, they are they are in the midst of those historical forces, and they need to come to recognize that with each day, to understand where do they stand in relation to those, and how can they do something about those historical forces that often make life difficult for the people that you minister to, um, and make conditions better, because the 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 forces will they will come they will come at you. Oh yeah, and they will and they will happen around you, and either you will respond to them uh, uh, proactively, or they will sort of sweep you up in 
whatever negative way that they they uh, often do, and you will be left powerless. The question is how do you how to how to develop and create meaningful power in that situation, and so I think that applies to um, anyone who's involved in the field of ministry or social justice. Yeah, in terms of those uh, great historical circumstances, you already mentioned the circumstances within the Catholic Church, especially that landmark event of the Second Vatican Council that's taking place in Mm -hmm. 62 to 65. But, you know, you and I know that great moments like that just don't come out of thin air. Um, there's all sorts of, of seed in the ground. And for Neil Mm -hmm. Connolly, of course, uh, it's, it's 1958 when he Mm -hmm. participates in a summer program in Puerto Rico that serves as this amazing, um, moment of transformation. I think of this individual, but a lot of others uh, to these larger questions of the church, as you say, walking in history. So let's talk a little bit about that kingdom that began in in Puerto Rico. Uh, why why was why was Neil sent there? Why was Neil part of a group of priests who were going to Puerto Rico? Sure. So. Uh... You know, again, uh, myself and, and 750,000 other Puerto Ricans, we overwhelmed the city um, over that 18-year period, from primarily from 1946 to 1964. We came in one wave after another. We were, of course, U.S. citizens allowed to freely travel here. Uh, we were mostly looking for economic opportunities, didn't have uh, a command of the English language, and... Uh, and by definition, essentially, we were all Catholics. And uh, the the city of New York had a really difficult time responding with its institutions to that community. Uh, yes, they came up with certain programs, et cetera, uh, you know, the city government, but uh, it was the people who were the, um, it, it was really left up to the church. Uh, and Cardinal Spalman took a look at this community um, that um, for years he was wondering what to do with them. And then eventually you've got uh, uh, Father Joe Fitzpatrick and Father Ivan Illich, who sort of come to the rescue and say, listen, uh, Cardinal, you need, we will establish a program so that uh, priests can go down and sisters can go down to Puerto Rico immerse themselves in the language and the culture of the people and come back and be ready to serve all these new parishes with all these new Puerto Ricans. And um, this is the way to do it. It's not enough to just sort of uh, go to a a Berlitz class at night and just learn Mm. Spanish. They needed to learn about the people because particularly Ivan Illich, uh, you know, extraordinary visionary and, and critical thinker, he said, uh, uh, this is a different Catholicism. Well, this is a different sort of expression of Catholicism. Even with the same set of beliefs, uh, the people of Puerto Rico have their own, have it on their own terms because it's based on their own historical experiences. And the people who are down there are people who will go to mass, uh, particularly those in the campo, in the countryside, away from the city. They will go to mass in small chapels 
that were built by them. They will uh, participate in services and whatever prayer groups in people's homes that are led by pray-ers, prayers. Mm-hmm. Women, these were women who would lead prayer services for whatever purpose it was. And um, people would say, well, why are they doing it? Where are the priests? Why don't the priests do it? Well, the priests were not there in significant numbers, particularly once the um, once the U.S. came in and took over Puerto Rico. Um, the original relationship between church and state that essentially uh, covered the entire island with priests uh, changed, um, and many of the parishes were uh, without priests. And people essentially, people of Puerto Rico, being the resourceful people that they are, they said, "Well, we'll figure out our own." our own way of doing church. And that's what they needed to find out about. And Neil Connolly had to realize that it was not going to be the church that he had just experienced a a week ago or a couple of weeks before he went to Puerto Rico in the fancy ornate St. Patrick's Cathedral with all the pomp and circumstance and the beautiful structures and and the formal confessions that he had experienced. And uh, it was gonna be none of that. It was going to be just direct experience with the people. And if he didn't have an idea of that uh, during the classes that he was going to at the, at the Catholic University, he got it on that first weekend when he went to the mountains, went to a, what we call today a bodega, it was called a colmado in Puerto Rico, a general store. Walked past all of this uh, strong containers of bacalao, of codfish, just sort of the strong odors, and went to the back of the store, sat on a wine crate, and heard confessions from people who were sitting on milk crates on either side of him. And they kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And he was, he was overwhelmed by the sheer number of people who wanted to see him as a priest. He was overwhelmed by the directness of the people. He was overwhelmed by their complete and utter faith in him, their trust in him. And he was, uh, but he was sort of absorbed into it, if you will. And then other experiences of of similar kinds of uh, sacraments and and events uh, really made it clear to him that this was a people that was very accepting of him. But this is not a people that um, they, they didn't do the old Catholic routine of, of the traditional Irish Catholicism that he and the entire Church of New York was built on. Yeah, and, and I think it's a Catholicism that many people feel is just a default. That is Catholicism. And yet uh, Neil's experience is one that opens him to a new world. In, in many senses, exactly. uh, Illich described mm-hmm. it as de-Yankification. Uh, exactly. But, uh, you know, Connolly comes back then to New York, uh, changed. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you say was key to that change? Or what, 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 um, what does he see in a new way? Um. Well, he, I think he saw that there was uh, there was a different way to demonstrate and express your faith. Mm. 
than what he had what he had known before he there was it was possible for the church i mean it's just you know when when you think about it when one thinks about it uh, it you've spent all your life you've been an altar boy you've gone to these traditional churches um, and you continue doing it through your 12 years of seminary preparation. And then you come here and, and you're looking for the church and they say, it's right here. It's a bodega. Mm. This is where the church is. And he essentially surrendered himself to that. He, he wasn't, he wasn't going to go somewhere and say, I can't accept these conditions. I, I can't work under these conditions. This is not what a priest is supposed to do. On the contrary, he just, he opened himself up. And this is the nature of Neil Connolly, the person and, and of his life. He opened himself up and said, okay, I am here. And the people are here and their faith is very strong. Um, you wouldn't have dozens and dozens of people waiting outside this bodega if there wasn't a real, uh, if there wasn't a, a really firm, uh, interest in expressing and practicing their Catholicism. So the church is just as legitimate here in the back of the store as anything that I have experienced during my years of preparation to be a Catholic priest. And when he went to a mass with the sugarcane workers on another weekend, he was up there on a hill, very small, place six in the morning in the top of the hill and there's nothing there are no uh, statues there there's no nothing ornate he's just there in this little structure that's been built and it turns out it's been built by the people and he says mass there and oh by the way he had to take off his shoes because it had been raining the night before and um he had to take off his shoes and socks because it, it the, the uh, area around the chapel was deep in mud. And, and so that's the way that he entered this church. And that's the way that he delivered service to a bunch of very dedicated and faithful sugarcane workers one Sunday morning. And that's where the church was. And so that's, that expands that whole new definition. You know, find it, it, it essentially told him, find the church anywhere, find the church wherever, as, you know, to paraphrase, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name. And this was truly wherever two or three or, or a couple of dozen were gathered and were gathered in his name. Um, and he realized, okay, this is the group of people. This is their approach to this. It's very direct. It's, it's very much coming from them. And um, if, if you're, if you stick with them, um, you'll see that this is just as holy as any place else that you could imagine. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, and and that shift, uh, not just in terms of uh, you know formality to informality, but but that as you say, seeing the church out there, I think is a really powerful mm -hmm. part of this story, not in the least because. When Neil Connolly comes back and, and carries out his ministry in the South Bronx, um, yes, it's about uh, the sacraments. Yes, it's about liturgy, but 
It's liturgy on the street. It's about the lives of the community and how to um, how to make that community uh, a better place so that it reflects, as, as the title of the book indicates, right, the kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. but that, in, that involves organizing for housing. That, that means dealing with violence and, and all these other things. So, uh, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that and uh, the community organizing and, and in organizations, well, like the South Bronx People for the Change, um, mm-hmm. I, I was really taken with your description of this summer in the city program and uh, right. Bob Fox, who uh, I, I guess was a mentor to um, Neil Connolly. He gives this talk in, in 1966 that talks about isolation as the principal mm-hmm. problem. Um, I, I was struck by how much that resonated even today. Uh, isolation <laughs> right. and yes and the kind of solution that fox but also uh connelly would embrace um you talk a little bit about that program and and how neil connelly kind of got into community organizing in the bronx sure sure i mean um this was uh uh so Bob Fox, by the way, you know, I think it's, again, it's just important to note that Neil was always a student. Mm. Um, he be, being that open person, he was always a student and he was really influenced by these different teachers uh, in, at different points in his life. And uh, Montini Bob Fox was one of those. He in fact was a participant along with a couple of other key uh, uh, priests in that summer in Puerto Rico, when he was in the university. He was a student just like Connolly was. Um, and, but he comes back and he's created this program that was supposed to be, by the way, it was, it was the Archdiocese's answer to Lyndon Johnson's call for a war on poverty. And somehow this, uh, Johnson said, you know, we've got we've to combat poverty on the streets. Um, and in fact, there was much more to the programming beyond what took place on the streets, but it, with through the archdiocese, the archdiocese through Bob Fox created, in fact, a program that took place on the streets. It was called Summer in the City. And Fox had always been um, uh, working or had been developing these principles of uh, the public forum of relationships. Uh, and creativity as as strategies as a as as part of an approach that can be taken to break the isolation that he believed is essentially at the heart of the powerlessness of people in the city but in fact he also believed it was at the heart of the american culture that we were each isolated from the other um that we were only uh, we, we didn't really have enough of an opportunity to build relationships with others. We were only looking for ourselves uh, or for our immediate family and uh, chasing an American dream. Um, his feeling was that, in fact, the powerlessness that existed in the inner city needed to be addressed by breaking that isolation. And in fact, he was affirming something that 
Neil Connolly and his uh, a parish group, he had the Movimiento Familiar Cristiano, the Christian family movement, had asserted way back when that everyone had left their the campo and those small pueblos in Puerto Rico where they knew each other and they could relate to each other and they could help each other out to these very large multifamily buildings where everyone is in their own world. They're all separated from each other um, in these dark, cold uh, apartments. Uh, and they couldn't relate to each other. And Fox said, we need to relate to each other. We've got to figure out a way to do it. Let's use creativity. Everyone wants to express themselves in some way. They do want to be creative. Whether or not you are Leonardo da Vinci or someone doodling on a piece of paper, you are always looking to express yourself. And so there is that creative urge. And if we can have people exercise their creativity and express themselves and do it in front of and with, in an interaction with other people, and, in, and that is do it right there on the streets. There was no other place to create it. We all knew the streets. We all shared the same streets. That that would be a way to build new relationships, to break the isolation, to give people uh, the opportunity to express themselves. And in the course of that, give people dignity, give people a sense of power. That yes, they can do something and they can be someone. And so then they structured it so that they would have the, the volunteers of the parish, the priests, the bishops, the sisters, um, lay persons would come in. Um, and they would come in with artists of all kinds, visual artists, music, musicians, uh, actors, theater people, and uh, sculptors, etc. And they would work on projects on the street. And in that way, people would see something on the street and they would go, oh, what's going on there? They would start to leave their apartments and they would start to become part of the efforts of creativity that were taking place on the street. And for Neil Connolly, that took place in Hunts Point Peninsula where he, they selected a block. They decided that they would take the approach of recreation because Neil Connolly was a sports guy. And that was, that was the mode that he was more comfortable with of engaging with other people. They went to a playground, they started playing volleyball. A couple of years later, after many days of recreation and engagement and interaction with people who didn't know each other at the beginning of the summer and who became good friends by the end of that summer, within a couple of years, Neil Connolly had really built a, a, a very strong committee that organized and led those efforts in the summer. And then the summer program was over and he was ready to go back to the main parish. Mind you, this, this place um, where he was organizing was a little bit remote from the central parish. And, and they turned around to him and they said, you can't leave us. And he said, and they said, well, why don't you stay? Why don't you help us build something here? So they wanted, they had already had, he had developed the people to the point where they said, we've got to make this continue. We've got to grow it. And he turned around to them, and this was one of the, the traits of Neil Connolly, to challenge people. He turned around and he said, okay, look, I'll come back, but I'm not going to run this. I'm going to go on vacation. You guys are going to get out, to, get together here, get your chairs, bring them out here on the street, have your meeting, and decide whether or not you're going to take responsibility for what we create here. 
And when I come back in a couple of weeks, you'll let me know what your decision is. If you want to do that, you'll run it and I'll help you out, but I'm not going to lead it. Mm-hmm. Comes back and they said, we decided we're going to do it. So he realized he had built something there. He had built a group of people that were empowered enough that they wanted to create something. And within half a year, a year's time, they had built a, a full service multi-service center for the community. And they built a chapel in this remote area of the parish, their own chapel. And both the community center and the chapel were led by the laypersons there. He essentially worked for them. And through that, they were able to provide all kinds of services to seniors, to youth, education, helping people get um, qualified for exams for to work at Con Edison. Um, and they even developed a program for a group of what, what they called leftover, the leftover Jews from the neighborhood. Because believe it or not, it was a, a, a somewhat a decent enough size uh, older Jewish population in that community. They didn't have any uh, services and uh, they worked to ultimately create um, a program for them. Um, and so uh, this got to the point where uh, he was so involved with them that he would, uh, he, that's where he was delivering mass. And then it got, and, and by the way, on the cover of the book, you'll see um, a photo of him with a group of young people and, some, and someone playing a guitar and others in a procession down the street. Well, that was taking place in Hunts Point Peninsula because he was even delivering mass both in the chapel and out on the street so that people could see the church was present in this neighborhood. And it had even gotten to the point where um, they, were, they were doing the Misa de Gallo, the midnight mass at that church. And he joined them afterward, after the mass was over. And his parents, his, his uh, mother and his brother had come up from uh, Yorkville neighborhood. And, uh, you know, he, was, he had introduced them to his community. They were all very happy to see them. And he said, look, I don't know if you want, I'm, we're going to go to our next step. We're going to go out and carry out the parranda, this classic Puerto Rican caroling, Christmas caroling in people's apartments and all, all the buildings in the neighborhood. And he said, I don't know if you want to join me. Uh, I don't know if you want to go. You can go home. They said, no, we'll go. And so he was joined by his family and they went knocking on doors. And uh, he also was a fan of music and he had a pretty good voice. And there he was knocking on the doors in this Hunts Point neighborhood saying, abreme la puerta, abreme la puerta, que estoy en la calle. So, um, and, and, and so it was a really sort of engaging uh, uh, community organization that he had developed and he was very much a part of it and he defended it uh, even in the you know in the face of various uh, sort of challenges that came his way i think that's a remarkable piece of the story because you know i have a lot of students who are interested in social change and have taken part in movements from occupy wall street to black lives matter but mm-hmm. I, I think there are a lot of lessons about social transformation here by that, by that creativity and especially that long-term mm-hmm. creating relationships. You know, Neil mm-hmm. Conley uh, just got people to find their own strength, their own power. And that, that, that's a big word in the book, um, people power. 
um, that mm -hmm. at, at one moment describes kind of uh, social transformation and how that can occur, which is a great part of this book. And then at the same time, uh, when you look at it theologically, in terms of Connolly's priesthood, um, you know, how to to really exercise uh, tr a true priesthood and really true power or, or a, a real view of power. You know, you, you in the book, you contrast power priests, you know, kind of focused mm -hmm. on political power and people priests uh, who mm -hmm. focused on developing people power. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I mean, what do you mean sure. about using power to lose power? What does that mean? Right. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, those points were, uh, I mean, these were, these were things that, uh, you know, Connolly sort of intuitively or instinctively uh, uh, tended to lean towards towards that uh, that habit, towards that activity of developing people. That was that's what he saw was an important thing to do. Um, and so, even though he did, um, even though he did sort of support his friend Father Lugiganti, the first Catholic priest to run for Congress in in uh, in, in the state of New York. And he supported his political campaign and, and he lost, uh, but then he supported him in his uh, subsequent city council campaign where he won. Um, uh, but, but his feeling was that even with like the political club that Giganti, Father Giganti had developed, that he could really have spent his time teaching the people there to understand issues, to understand policies, to understand politics, and to themselves using their good uh, principles of justice and their knowledge of the issues to take a stand on for themselves. Um, but that was not what, that was not the way that uh, Father Giganti felt comfortable doing, but that's what Neil Connolly would have preferred. Um, and when he was part of Movimiento Familiar Cristiano, um, the idea there, this was something that really is, you know, came out of a, a movement in the 19 teens in Europe uh, from Catholic action. So this is essentially a reenactment of Catholic action in the South Bronx, where lay persons came together and said, see, judge, act. Take that, take those, that approach, that three-part approach, and figure out how your Catholic faith, you as a lay person, uh, as a member of a lay group, with your Catholic faith, can take a look at the world and do an analysis of the situation and why that situation is occurring. What are the root causes of it? And you can then formulate the actions to solve that problem. So he was doing that even with the Movimiento Familiar Cristiano. Now their solution, uh, their problem as they saw it was that isolation as Bob Fox had done. And their solution was to organize a bunch of trips so that people could go up to, you know, out of state and they could be in nature together. And, uh, and they brought together hundreds of people and they did address that issue. And they, and Connolly was impressed with how those persons made the decision. They were the ones who selected the, the issue of isolation and they were the ones who came up with, and they, they were the ones who uh, conducted their analysis and they were the ones who came up with, with the solutions and implemented them, and he was there to support them. So even from that early experience, uh, he was doing it. And um, 
Probably another thing to add is that this, this was a man who had a real appreciation for things that had gone on nationally and internationally in the church. And so this Catholic action movement he was aware of. And, and he said, yes, this would be a good thing to be a part of because it develops people. And his role as a priest was not to dominate, not to direct, but to support. And he did it again with Seneca Center. Building off of that Movimiento Familiar Cristiano, he, that's when he, that incident on the street where they said, you can't leave us, not after what we built. And he turned around and he said, don't tell me what I can't do. You decide to take responsibility for this organization and I'll support you. This is not going to be my organization. This is going to be yours. And then ultimately, even later, when he decides that he's going to, um, that he's going to take action on the buildings that, uh, that were in need of repair, of dramatic repair, he did take the lead with a group, with an organized group of ministers, uh, Protestant ministers, as well as priests and some Roman Catholic sisters. And they acted together. But he knew that something else needed to be done. He wasn't sure exactly what that vehicle would be. And that vehicle came along um, because he realized he would, otherwise he would, he would act as if he had power as a priest. But ultimately, when he took on the campaigns against the arson that was taking place in the South Bronx and against plans to rebuild the South Bronx coming from on high, from the federal government, from the Jimmy Carter administration, and from City Hall, from the Koch administration, he realized, we're not gonna win this. No matter how much advocacy we do, we're just not gonna win this. And in the meantime, the people that we, we seek to be representing on these issues, they're not gonna benefit. And he came back to those original principles of let the people become their own voices and let the people become organized. And uh, didn't quite know exactly how he was going to do it. But again, teachers came in and uh, on the, on the social justice side, he was brought in by Phil Murnian, father Phil Murnian to attend the national conference of the Catholic conference and urban ministry. And he, so now he becomes this national priest, Neil Connell, uh, but always committed to the South Bronx. And he starts to learn about something called church-based organizing. And he finds these extraordinary teachers, Harry Fagan, La- Father Larry Gorman, Sister Marjorie Tewitt, who were members of the board of this SECOM organization, along with Connolly. And they were holding conferences about the latest techniques and approaches and, and, and results of uh, organizing campaigns around the country. But he, he's really impressed with the three of them uh, because they had put together a format, uh, a training format, uh, essentially a three-part uh, training program that they offered at Notre Dame and in other parts of the country that discussed the, uh, uh, an approach to organizing that combined faith and the scriptural basis and the theological basis for social justice and for social action. 
That was delivered by Father Larry Gorman. Analysis of institutions of power and the relationships that we individuals have with the institutions that make decisions over our lives. And again, this book is, a lot of this book is about that, about decisions made that impacted the lives of the Puerto Ricans that Neil Connolly served. So there's the power analysis. And in uh, understanding what relationships are, are dignifying and support the, the uh, equality and the dignity of the human beings and which ones promote inequality and injustice. And then the third component, what are the techniques of community organizing that can be used uh, to change those conditions? That was delivered by Father, by Mr. Harry Fagan. And that team trained, uh, delivered that training at a workshop that Neil Conley was in. And he said, wow, this is amazing. This is what we've got to bring back to the South Bronx. We've got to some, do something with this. He brought it back to the South Bronx and ultimately they said, okay, now that you've learned this stuff, what are you going to do about it? And he and the members of a group that he had pulled together, the South Bronx Catholic Association, decided we are going to establish a community organizing project here and we will develop the people here. And so Neil Connolly co-founded this organization that what came to be known in 1979 as South Bronx People for Change. It was an area-wide uh, organization that would ultimately uh, engage uh, about 14 parishes of the 24 parishes in the South Bronx with layperson-led social action committees. Every group would meet and they would use the principles of see, judge, and act to determine what issues were important to them where the, where the problem was and, and what actions can we take to change the conditions that, that, that represent this issue. It's, it's amazing to hear the history and, and the culmination then of the South Bronx People for Change. I, I wonder for readers today, especially younger readers who don't know this period and um, you know, it'd be looking back on it a bit wistfully. Uh, it, it, thinking about today, uh, mm -hmm. do, do you see these energies? Are they um, are they within the Catholic Church? Are they simply more and more outside of the church and in in uh, these lay community structures? Uh, what what is a reader to take away from your book when they look at the landscape today? Right. I think there's um, the it's a good question. Um, I do know that these um, church based organizing networks and projects do exist in the United States. They can be found in uh, many, most of the states of the United States. There are a couple of national networks, the what was known as the PICO organization that originated in California is now known as Faith in Action. And um, you've got a combination. It's a, they are generally ecumenical uh, and uh, both lay-led and minister-led, um, and they involve some of the same kinds of activities, um, looking at the issues that are affecting people in their neighborhoods um, and uh, making an analysis of 
where the where the causes are and what the solutions are, and then taking direct nonviolent action to confront them. Um, and um, and and the fact that they are uh, these are organizations with budgets, with set, you know, with the organizing staffs in each of the states and the cities where they're located, um, is a good indicator. And, and obviously, it's always a challenge for these kinds of organizations to keep themselves funded. Um, but they, uh, it it suggests that there's going to be longevity, that there's going to be some staying power, um, and. Um, so that, to me, is a really good indicator of where there is action taking place um, involving actual parishes and the laypersons and the lay leaders. Of course, just like there's always been, I think, in the church since, I mean, when you look at the liturgical movement of, of prior years or the Christian family movement or Catholic action, there are always going to be uh, Catholic lay leaders who will take action on both on church issues and on world issues, if you will, on the issues of the world. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think you're gonna find those groups present. Um, they may be sort of operating in, in, you know, a parallel situation, if you will, to what the traditional um, uh, Catholic church may be doing, um, but they are also, organizing uh, and taking on issues. I know that there was a call to action group in New York that spent many years um, looking to uh, challenge the death penalty. Um, and they have been looking now at issues of um, solitary confinement. And so they're taking action on that. There's certainly a strong movement going on uh, in a number of places uh, to confront the climate issue. And that's something that obviously we all need to take a look at in whatever way we can. Um, and and there you will find, I think, a good number of these faith and action groups, for example, um, and other similar church-based organizing groups will be taking on some of these larger issues. They have started to look at health insurance and healthcare in America. Um, because they have been able to form broader networks, they are in a position to confront bigger issues, which is something that we had a difficulty doing when we were in the South Bronx. Mm -hmm. We were wanting to do something about the future of the South Bronx as a bigger area, but we still had to meet people where they were with the issues that were in front of them. You know, in, in thinking about Neil Connolly and you know, I, I've had to write uh, a little bit on a person like Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador you know, you have mm -hmm. these figures that are so easy to lionize, you know, heroes. And yet mm -hmm. it, it strikes me that if their lives are, in fact, extraordinary, it's, um, it, it's in the context of being kind of ordinary people. And especially yes. with these two, in that ability to include others, to empower those who are around them. Um, not that they had some kind of special, you know, Marvel hero ability, superpowers or something, <laughs> but, but that they right. were able to, to um, really catalyze communities that, that empowered, you know, it just empowered people to act in, and so that the results somehow become special. But what you're talking about are just 
ordinary people. I, I, I wonder if you face that challenge in writing about Neil Connolly. Right, sure. Um, I mean, um, I, I, I certainly, I mean, he was applauded for a lot of the work that he did. And I mean, he became a much a more visible figure, you know, as as Archbishop Romero became more visible figure when he when he, you know, attained his titles. Um, you know, Neil Connolly became the vicar of the South Bronx. Um, they, uh, you know, they realized that if this were going to um, mean anything and he wanted to, his work to be meaningful and that's sort of what drives him, you know, and that's sort of the way that I was able to sort of approach. That's where I was able to, I think, you know, take a look at what, what was his approach? What was driving him and think about it. Uh, so I don't tell the entire story of the South Bronx or of all the other organizations, but more from what was he seeing and what was he confronting? What was he aware of and what was he responding to? And uh, because he is himself is going through the process of see, judge and act in response to the, what, the conditions that he sees in front of him. And I think he was. Uh, and I think he was uh, looking to others to do the same uh, and to be, you know, to be guided by the same. Um, you look at, you look at what is needed. And so when they decided, for example, that they needed a vicar for the South Bronx, uh, they said, well, it can't just be sort of a ceremonial position. And, oh, by the way, <laughs> It cannot be appointed by the cardinal, even though that had been uh, that had been the procedure in every vicariate in the archdiocese since those things were created. A cardinal always appointed the vicars. In this case, it was that he said, well, let's get the people together from the Catholic Association, decide how we're going to approach this. And they said, we should create a full time vicar. Because we're talking about the, the South Bronx, for Christ's sake. There's a lot of needs here. We have a lot of issues. You know, when we're talking about the South Bronx, we're talking about a population that was roughly 700,000 people. It was a city. Uh, in the proposals that we wrote, we compared it to Milwaukee, to Boston, to Detroit. That's what it was, and that's what it is. Um, and so they said, we need to have something that's a, that, that will allow the person, that vicar, really have enough time to engage with as many of the parishes as possible, find out what their needs are, find out what he could do to support them. He took that mission and he, and he was elected, uh, the vicar by the people there. And, um, he was, he kind of, uh, shocked the people down at the archdiocese in headquarters when they said, Oh, listen, we wanted to talk to you about, uh, appointing a vicar. And this is, he said, no, 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 we don't need that. We, we, we voted for one already. We elected one already. And, and people were shocked by this act of democracy within the church. Um, and, you know, this doesn't make him this great lion. This just makes him uh, this believer that this is the way you do things. You, you go to the people, see what they want, see what they need, let them express themselves. And um, good, if they are acting in good faith, good decisions will come from this. And um, then you are held accountable, by the way, to the people 
for uh, for the, the 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 role and the responsibilities that you take on. Um, and I think that's I, I think that's what it was. I think it, I, I venture to say, without having been a, a you know a, a student of Romero like yourself, that you see this responsibility. You see you you pray and you see what is the what are you being called to do? And um, the call is to serve people. And the call is to uh, create a community among all of the parishes of the South Bronx. And the call is to allow each of these parishes to develop to their fullest. And, and there's a call also to create entities that might be able to serve all of these parishes. And they did so by creating two organizations. South Bronx People for Change and the South Bronx Pastoral Center. And I've discussed a little bit of People for Change in the Pastoral Center. Essentially, people were being taught to be ministers. Baptismal, Eucharistic, uh, you know, uh, music ministers uh, and lectors, laypersons. And by the way, these were the Puerto Ricans that Neil Connolly was first just sort of baptizing I mean, this is from the same generation of people who a couple of decades earlier, in 1958, he's spending his time baptizing 1,500 people a year, 1,000 people a year. And they were just becoming a part of the church. 20 years later, he's supporting an organization, the South Bronx Pastoral Center, that was taking these people and teaching them to be ministers. And it was significant because it was an extension of that principle that you must develop pe the people. But it's also from a very practical point of view, Michael, looking at this question of what's going to happen to us, speaking of uh, white ministers, what's going to happen to us white guys and gals when we're gone and when we're not being replaced in significant numbers by priests and sisters and brothers? Because that's what was going on, too. Who is going to lead this growing Hispanic community. The church had not come up with, they had, they had come up with a plan to send priests down to Puerto Rico and sisters to learn the language and learn the culture and serve, but they did not come up with a plan to create a whole new cadre, a whole new core of future Puerto Rican priests, for example. Mm. Because if there were, it was purely by accident. It was not any kind of deliberate program that did this. And Neil Connolly said, uh, following Bob Stern's uh, guidance, because it was Father Bob Stern who created this small program in one parish, he told him, you need to make this available for the entire South Bronx. You need to make as many lay people as possible, ministers in whatever capacity they can be, to understand the theology and to understand the sacraments and to be able to deliver them, essentially creating a seminary for lay persons a primarily Puerto Rican background, the only one of its kind in the United States was created in the South Bronx and it ran for a good 15 years. Yeah, you know, it, it's such a, a different uh, model. Uh, even if you think earlier in the 20th century, the, the model for a lot of Catholic immigrant populations was the national parishes, but, but here... Yes this overwhelming number and, and new strategies that needed to be uh, devised. But 
What strikes me, especially today, when not just in the Catholic Church, but in all of the Christian churches, people are talking about deconversion, about young people uh, not choosing to be within, you know, faith traditions. Uh, Mm -hmm. You say at one point, uh, I believe that, and in this case, you were talking about the Puerto Ricans and, and even larger, the Latinos and Latinas across the United States could be wooed to support their church in every way possible with a different kind of church, one that emphasizes mm -hmm. community over institution, that gives them, as you say, a full stake in every aspect of the church. I think mm -hmm. that's a remarkable vision and quite frankly, uh, not very common one um, <laughs> where, you know, you have a prominent uh, archbishop, um, you know, declaring that uh, organizations uh, for social justice are pseudo religions, you know, and seeing them as a threat. Oh, yes. Right. Rather than as an opportunity to say, hey, how can we as a church, you uh, you know, address this need, uh, be a part of changing uh, the society that is so wounded um, structurally and historically. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think a huge takeaway from this book is really to, to put that, that vision of the church that, that, you know, Neil Connolly, and again, as part of this wider community of, of people finding their own power uh, we're really a part of, um, and, and seeing that as, as still an option for today. Yes. Yeah. I think that there's, um, um, we, we are still, you know, the, the human beings of today are no different from the human beings, you know, post, uh, second world war. Um, we are still looking to find our place in society. Uh, we are still facing, um, conditions of um, of inequality, of institutional inequality, of uh, poverty, of and all of the, you know, symptoms of poverty that 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 people face. And I mean, when you're talking about, I don't know, I think it's something like 146 million people um, sort of falling into the category of of low wealth or poor in the United States. That's an extraordinary number. Um, and so there's plenty of work to be done. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there are certainly much to work on. It's not like we can sit back and say, okay, great. Everyone's got, every, there are no needs. Um, and uh, we don't have to worry about uh, changing, um, you know, the status quo. On the contrary. And, and uh, you know, change needs to happen on some regular basis. And that change I mean, the change can come in any number of ways, right? And so, for example, the Black Lives Matter people, just to, just to throw that out as an, as an example, in response to the protest that took place after the George Floyd murder, um, they were, this was a real movement, and they really sort of disrupted society. And uh, they um, shook things up and made... Uh, corporate and institutional and, and, and public sector America aware that there was something, you know, really wrong and needed to be changed. And, and so you had some responses to that uh, because people realized, well, this is, they're not kidding around. There's really something wrong here and we really have to speak to it. We have to respond to it somehow. Um, uh, 
but but it was difficult, I think, to be rooted in something while this campaign, uh, what you know, this particular campaign for justice was going on. And I think it some of it had, you know, um, and and you you had a church and you know that was not involved in it that was not called to be in it necessarily enough, and by church I mean the broader community of people who are um, the, the the members of the Catholic Church, um, and individually, like with some of these networks, these faith in action and other organizations, they may very well have been um, active. Uh, protests there going on, but the question of what are the what are the real kinds of changes that you want to work on, that you want to make happen, and that you are going to work for over a multi-year period of time, uh, with specific institutions changing the way that uh, black people are housed or educated or cared for in terms of their health. That's you know that involves much a much greater level of engagement, and so that's where I think some of the church-based organizing networks are able to to do that uh, are enough. You know, Catholic parishes involved in those things. I, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't think necessarily so. Um, uh, some are, and I think it's incumbent upon upon more of them to form organizations and to commit themselves. Certainly, I would say to the, the climate issue, since we are, you know, the clock is ticking and we are running out of time. Uh, but certainly if there, if it's the racial inequity or, or some of these other issues, but to really define them in the ways that, that people can really understand them and people can have power over them. Because if you don't define them, then you just go around saying, well, yeah, we're, you know we're oppressed <laughs> and and you you go around screaming you're oppressed but but uh when it's all when you're tired and you and you have nothing to say the the conditions haven't changed and people's lives need to be made better and that involves sort of the real hard work of both of both building community and taking that community out into the world and saying, you've got to change, you've got to become the kingdom of God here. You so, know, our, our uh, time is coming to an end, so I wonder if you have uh, yeah. a, a final thought. I, I know for myself, uh, it, it is the notion of, of this uh, losing power um, mm -hmm. that really uh, speaks to a vision of, of ministry, um, mm -hmm. using power, you know, losing power to use power to empower others. I, but I know as mm -hmm. a, as a university, university professor in my classroom, there are ways that I can <laughs> lose power. I think, uh, mm -hmm. all of us in, in our own ways, uh, can think about, um, that, that notion of using power to lose power and thus empowering others and finding it in community. That's, that was a real takeaway uh, from this book for me and, and the example mm -hmm. of Neil Connolly. I don't know, did, did you have any final thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, um, yeah, and I, I, 
the, the whole question of, of letting people know that, uh, I mean, from, from the perspective of uh, ministry, whether you're sort of a professional organizer or a professional minister or, uh, you know, uh, a lay person looking for answers, um, um, that's that's you know this vision of a shared power on earth that's what we're working towards and if and we all have each of us you know uh, many of us in as part of this uh network here um the, of the hti network for example uh, we've got um the good fortune uh, in terms of education and in terms of organizational support and organizational experience uh, and, and, and ability to analyze things, we've got we've got power, and we have uh, and and to the extent that we have a, a, a vision of the world, and we internalize it and say, I've got to keep working every single day to shift from my power to the shared power that is the kingdom of God on earth. And every single day that I'm getting closer, that I'm using my power to specifically lose it to this group of people that can take on an issue or that group of people that can build a church or this group of people that can uh, create a worker cooperative or that group of people that can uh, develop a, a sustainable agriculture solidarity program uh, or this particular group of people that can campaign to get people to come out and vote. Every time I'm doing that, I'm losing more of my power. I am using my power at the same time that I'm losing it in the right way. So that uh, if there's a new group that's created that's got that's got the power to affect one of these to create one of those organizations that will essentially change one of these aspects of society, then I'm following the vision of uh, the kingdom of God on earth. Yeah. Well, that sounds like the gospel to me. Um, <laughs> well, it has been great uh, to talk to Angel Garcia about his book, The Kingdom Began in Puerto Rico, Neil Connolly's Priesthood in the South Bronx. Now, thank you so much, Angel, for sharing with us uh, today and, and for writing the book. Um, this has been wonderful. Thank you. And thank yeah, you. It's to, great to talk about. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this conversation, look for other editions of the HTI Open Plaza podcast. Uh, so thank you again and take care all. We didn't say. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.